You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2014. Today's episode is titled The Tithe Principle. There is a long-standing debate in the Christian community regarding the tithe principle. Many consider the principle a concept unique to the Mosaic Law. Then they conclude that since the Mosaic Law is obsolete, the tithe principle is obsolete. Though the tithe principle is incorporated into the Mosaic Law, the origination of the principle predates the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is simply an example of its application. Individuals, as well as organizations, should practice the principle of the tithe not as a ritual, but out of a genuine relationship of gratitude to and dependence on Christ. We should be joyfully thankful to God and become dependent on Him when we recognize God as the source of success in the workplace. One way to express grateful hearts is to practice the tithe principle both individually and organizationally. Management should seek to build organizations with individuals who practice the tithe principle from their hearts. And management should practice the tithe principle organizationally as well. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Tithe Principle. To you about the tale of two kings. Have any of y'all ever read the, uh, the book, The City of God by, by Augustine? St. Augustine? No, no one's read that? Some of you have? Okay. It's a great picture of reality. Augustine wrote this book at a time when the Roman Empire had been conquered. And the Christian community uh, in the Roman Empire was wondering, you know, why did this happen? You may recall that about uh, 325, the emperor of Rome uh, actually eliminated the persecution of Christianity, which had gone on for so long, and adopted Christianity as the state religion. And so... A hundred years later, when this defeat happens and the Roman Empire is effectively collapsed, many in the Roman Empire began to question Christianity and began to question whether or not the Roman gods, the pagan Roman gods, were angry because Christianity had been adopted as the official state religion. So this prompted Augustine to write the book, The City of God. And of course, the opposite of the city of God is the city of man. So in the context of this discussion, what he's going into is the ultimate reality of the universe that we're dealing with. Now, most of you probably think you live in a city called Lethbridge or some city close to Lethbridge, which on one level you do, but there's another level of of reality that you need to be in contact with. The great patriarch Abram was very aware of this. In fact, as he walked out his life struggling with the reality of what it was to walk in faith, struggling with the reality walking in the promises of God, he had to ponder this very question himself. And his answer to that question was that there was a city of God that whose foundations was not material, whose reality was not material. It was beyond this existence. So Abraham is the first one that really struggled with this, and Augustine just came along some thousands of years later and reintroduced the discussion. But today we want to revisit this whole issue of the city of God and the city of man. We'll do it by talking about two kings, two different kings. Obviously, one is going to be the king in one realm, and the other is going to be a king in the other realm. So the text I want to look at this morning is out of Genesis chapter 14. And I'm not going to read this whole text here. I forget that with uh, uh, Apple, things are slower. Have you all noticed that? Have you used Apple devices? They don't respond sometimes as quickly, and you've got to be patient with them. So if I mess up a little bit on my uh, switching slides, forgive me. Uh, Genesis chapter 14 records an interesting story that speaks to the whole issue of the tale of two kings. It speaks to the issue of the city of God and the city of man. Now, you remember the background here is in Genesis chapter 12, we have a man named Abram introduced to us. Now, up to this point, we've had a series of very interesting events go on. We've had creation. We've had the fall of man. And then we have man left to himself without any written revelation. And what happened to the state of man left to himself without any written revelation to guide him and direct him and help him make good choices? 
What happened to him? Remember the flood? Why the flood? You can talk to me. It's okay. You know, I thought about getting a bunch of kids up here where I could just talk to them and the adults would just sit back and watch. That would probably work great. Well, man proved that his basic nature was very decadent, very sinful. So what he did is he just made things worse and worse and worse in terms of his rebellion against God. And God finally says, enough, that's it. We're going to do a reboot. So the reboot was the flood. And what God did was just take eight people, put them in the ark, put some of the animals in the ark, wiped out everybody else. It's a reboot. Okay, now we start over with eight people that are supposedly righteous people that, that know the Lord and want to walk with God. And now they're given another opportunity to do the same thing. Okay, don't, no written revelation, but you know the Lord. Pass it on to your heirs and let's see how you do. What happened there? Ended up in the Tower of Babel. Remember that? What was the Tower of Babel all about? That was all about man building monuments for himself. About man self-glorifying. And so what did God do there? Another reboot. This time we'll judge this project, this city, and show again that man's efforts to define reality, man's efforts to do what man wants to do according to his will and ways will not stand before God. So now we've had these different experiments here where man, sinful man, fallen man, you know, who is in need of reconciliation with God has demonstrated that he can't do that very well. So now God's going to bring another era of time. And this is going to be an era of promise. So what he's going to do is give a promise to one man. And this promise was given to Abram. Abram was given the promise that I will bless you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will furthermore, I, you will be a blessing to many. You will have a great name. Those who curse you will be cursed. Those who bless you will be blessed. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, that's Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, you know, loosely, loosely quoted to you. But the end of chapter 3, chapter, excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 12 says, Through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, do you recognize what that says? Does anybody know of a text in the New Testament that refers to that text? I'll give you a hint. Galatians chapter 3. If you look at Galatians chapter 3, you will find there that Paul tells us that that was a preaching of the gospel. The gospel was preached right there in Genesis 12, verse 3. The blessing of salvation by grace through faith in Christ was preached in that verse. Now, most of us didn't see it. We could have read that verse over and over again and not seen it unless the Apostle Paul, we read the Apostle Paul, and that would point us to that text. So Abram was given now the solution. Everything that had happened prior to him, the efforts of man to try to reconcile himself with God after the fall proved absolutely fruitless. And now we're going to have a promise. But interestingly, that promise is not going to be fulfilled immediately. Instead, the, the promise is going to be fulfilled some thousands of years later when Christ comes. And so there's this interim period between the promise and Christ, the fulfillment of the promise. What goes on in that interim period? Anybody remember? You kids in Sunday school, did you know? You ever heard of Israel? The law? That was the period of the law. Now, why the law? Why do we have this period of time where the Israelite people are given the law and told... You know, you can be perfect before God. You can be reconciled to God. You can be right with God if you obey the law perfectly. Now, why are they given that particular opportunity? It's really because what they wanted is the very thing we want. We want God just to tell us what to do and we'll do it. 
Don't you want that? Deep down you do. I remember when I was first saved, I was saved at 11 years old. And I remember distinctly, I mean, this has been a long time ago too, I remember this. Praying before the Lord, I was probably 12 years old. I said, Lord, if you'll just tell me what to do, I'll do it. You see the problem with that? Israel gave us the grand experiment of that thought. God says, okay. If you look at Exodus chapter 19, he tells the Israelites, you know, if you'll do everything I tell you to do, you'll be my people and I'll be your God. It'll all be okay. And they said what? Yeah, we'll do it. Just like I said when I was 12 years old. No clue what I was saying. No, no idea of, of the sin that was in me that would stop me from being able to do that. Well, so most of the Old Testament unfolds the reality of what's in man, which lays the foundation for the reality of the need of Christ. Because if you don't know how dark your soul is and how utterly helpless you are to obey God perfectly, then you won't see the need for Christ. Quick little story. Did you know that in uh, China, it's an atheist country, that, that, that 10% of the population of China professes to be a Christian? You aware of that? Okay, that's an atheist country. Now, go across the Sea of, Japan, the sea of China to Japan, and now you have the Japanese people. And I don't know about you, but I look at the Chinese, I look at the Japanese, I don't see a lot of difference. They look the same to me. But the reality is in Japan, do you know what percent of the population professes to be Christian in Japan? Anybody have any idea? One percent. One percent. Wait a minute. Japan is not an atheist nation. How is it that less than 1% of the population can profess to be a Christian in Japan when over 10% in China, which is an atheist nation? What is going on here? Well, the, the struggle in Japan with the gospel is very simple. The major struggle is they have no concept of human depravity. If you don't have a concept of human depravity, then your default is going to be to think, well, I don't need a Savior. If I do something wrong to make the gods unhappy, and that's how they think, all I have to do is do a little ritual, do a little dance, burn some incense, you know, say some words, bow down a few times, you know, you know go, go in a circle, scream and shout, do something. That would please the God and everything's cool. So this is one of the great impediments to Christianity in Japan is there's no real conviction of the sinfulness of man. Well, the Old Testament, you ever notice how much of the Bible is the Old Testament? You ever looked at that? If you, if you take your Bible, if you've got a paper Bible, you know, my paper Bible's at home, gathering dust, because I don't use paper Bibles. I use my electronic Bibles. But you look at it, it's probably two-thirds to three-fourths of your paper Bible is the Old Testament, most of which is about the law, which was given in Exodus chapter 20. So Exodus chapter 20 to Malachi, you look at that and say, wow, that's a big chunk of the Bible. Now, what is that? What is that? Well, I think what, he's, what the Lord's saying by that reality is it is hard for us to get this Hard for us to really understand the depravity of man. And so he's going to try to give us all kinds of opportunities to get it. He's going to talk to us about it in all kinds of different ways, tell us all kinds of stories, illustrate it in all kinds of ways. Because you've got to be clear that you cannot do enough to gain standing with God. Nobody, it doesn't matter who you are, what good works you think you do, you can never do enough to merit God's approval. Which means the only way you can stand before God accepted is based on the blood of Christ. And Christ, the coming of Christ, was promised to us. Actually, in Genesis chapter 3, it was promised to us. 
But in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, that promise is again stated now in the context that this heir of Abraham would indeed be the one that would bring us reconciliation with God. So this is the context of what we want to talk about this morning is this particular story and how this plays out because now Abraham has been given a promise and guess what? Have you noticed that when God gives you a promise, what's going to come next? A test. And the first test he had was the promise that he was given was to come through his heir and he had no heirs. Now that is a problem, isn't it? Now how is this going to happen? My wife Sarah and myself, we have no children, and yet you've told me that this promise is going to be fulfilled my, through my heirs. Could you explain this to me, please? So he's got that first uh, you know, problem coming along. The next problem that comes along is there's a famine, and they have to run down to Egypt to find something to eat. And everybody's looking at Sarah saying, this is a beautiful woman. By the way, you know, Sarah at that time was an old woman. Did you know that when they went down there? Yeah. Yeah, she was probably about uh, 65 years old, something like that, 65, 70 in that range. And she was a beautiful woman. So Abraham gets down there and says, you know, uh, if you say I'm your husband, they'll kill me and take you. But if you say you're my, you know, my sister, well, they'll spare me. What's that? That's called unbelief. See, so he's tested right there. Then the next test comes along is after they come back from Egypt, it says that he got very wealthy. Did you know wealth is a test? Yeah, it's a test. He got very wealthy, and Lot, his nephew, who also had traveled with him to the promised land, he also became wealthy. And so now they're dwelling together, and they've got a lot of people and a lot of livestock and cattle, all this stuff. And now the people begin to bicker. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever seen that, but they couldn't get along. And so Abram went to Lot and said, look, there's no reason for us to be fighting amongst each other. We just need to split up, and you can take whatever land you want. And Lot says, okay, I'm going to take the fertile land of the Jordan, and I'm going to leave the Rocky Mountains up to you. So he takes the best land and takes his people and goes, and now he lives there, and he decides to move into a city called Sodom. Sodom was a decadent city, a wicked city, an evil city, a city that was living in the fullness of the depravity of man. And so the next test that comes along is a war. You know, God's so creative in how he can test us. You know, there's just no end of circumstances that he can set up to test us. So here comes this war. This, this, this group of, of military people, headed up by four kings, comes down from the north down to Sodom. Sodom, the best we can tell, we don't know exactly where Sodom was, but we think it was at the southern end of the Dead Sea. Sodom and Gomorrah and several other cities were down there. And so here these kings come down here because Sodom and Gomorrah had been subject to this, this king, this, uh, these four kings, and they rebelled. So the four kings come down to assert their authority and to assert their rule on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the process, what they do is they, they basically wipe out the armies that are opposing them, take Lot and the other people of Sodom, and they take the goods, the food and all the, the nice furnish, furnishings and all the ladies' clothes and all that stuff, and now they take it back with them up to where they live. So that's where we want to pick up the story is the reality of these four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Okay, so here's a map here to show you kind of what, was, what things were like. I wish I had a pointer. But basically, the upper, upper right portion northeast of the Sea of Galilee is where these kings lived. Sodom and Gomorrah are down south of the Dead Sea. Now, Abram is living to, you know, north of the Dead Sea and to the west. Now, I tried to scale this off, and it looks like to me that the distance between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is, is um, you know, 
I'm going to say a couple thousand kilometers, maybe something like that. That's a guess. So how long would it take you to go that distance if you were traveling by foot? Maybe 10 days? Could you do that in 10 days? Could you do 50 kilometers a day on foot? Could you do that? Yeah, something like that. But it kind of gives you a sense. That's not exact, just a rough sense. To let you know that what's going to happen here with these, these armies moving around takes time. It's not instantaneous. They didn't just jump on a 747 and, and get there in a few hours. This, this was a lengthy period of time. Okay, so here's um, Abram. He's sitting in his home, minding his own business. And all of a sudden, a man escaped from the, the, the battles. And from, I guess he knew that Abram was related to Lot. And so the text says, a man who escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Abram means exalted father, and Hebrew means one from beyond. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eschol and Anar, and all of which were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out of the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. Now, the city of Dan is located north of the Sea of Galilee. So, again, we've got multiple days, probably weeks of travel, you understand they didn't have tanks, they didn't have cars. They may have had some camels, and they were traveling slowly, moving up there. Now you might say, well, they only had 318 men, and that's not true. They had at least that, but they also had, if you look at the end of the text, you'll see that these three buddies, these friends, Mamre, Eskol, and Aner, they also went with him. So he had a bigger army than the 318, but they traveled up north and found the kings, found Lot and all the citizens of Sodom, found the goods that they had stolen, and now what he does is he pulls together an attack. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, son north of Damascus, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other men, other people. So this is Abraham's venture. Now, anybody been on a venture before? Where God's given you something to do? He's assigned you something to do? Yeah, we all have. So don't just think of this as a military venture. This is a venture that God has set up. You know, this is not an accident. This is just a random event. This is something that's orchestrated by God to accomplish something that God wants to accomplish. And one of the things that God's working on is Abram because he's trying to build in Abram the character that Abram needs so Abram can do what he's called to do. So Abram wins the battle, and now he comes back. And when he comes back, he runs into these two kings. Verse uh, 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Solomon, Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. This is near Jerusalem. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to the God Most High, who delivered our enemies into our hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first time in all of Scripture that you have a reference to the tithe. Now, this is important. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and so in Genesis, you find the, the, the seminal idea of a, lot of, of a lot of concepts in Scripture. And so when you see the, something showing up for the first time, you need to pay attention because there's great significance as to what this means. So one of the things we want to talk about is what this means, is tithe. What's this all about? Why the tithe? But first, I want to point out the difference here between the two kings. The king of Sodom represents communion with the world. The king of Salem represents communion with God or with Christ. 
Now, what is communion? Some of you may have studied the Greek language a little bit. No, no, something of the Greek language. You know, koinonia is the word for communion in the Greek language. It refers to fellowship. It refers to alignment, agreement, participation, unity, togetherness. So these are the kind of synonyms that you can put with this idea of communion. So what you have here is two different kings offering you two different communions. Communion with the world, man's ways and man's wills, or communion with Christ, which is God's will and God's ways. So those are the things that are in tension here. So first, let's take a look at the king of Sodom. With raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who were with me, to Aner, Eschol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Now this is a very interesting text here. Because you can see, Abram was not driven by money. Now think about this. You get word that one of your relatives has been captured, and all the goods of the city taken, and you decide to mount an expedition to go and rescue the people and get the goods back. So you get the 318 trained men in your household. By the way, you remember, he has no children. So who is the household? Obviously, it's extended family, and in that, that day and time, they had servants, so obviously included that as well. But they had been trained in his household, which means they had his value system. They had his philosophy of life, his principles, his practices. Any of y'all tried to, try to build an organization? You know, I work with all kinds of organizations, and I see consistently that when you have a husband and a wife coming together, to build something, that is the best way to build anything. This incredible power and the unity. That when you bring in extended family members that you trust and you know have been trained under your tutelage, then you just add another layer of safety in what you're building. It's something really sound about building with family. Now, I know there's lots of challenges with it to it, and it doesn't always work, but it is one of the very best ways to do it if you can do it. So that's what he did. He, this was a family enterprise, a family venture with some allies, trusted allies. And so he goes up there and he spends now weeks, maybe months, sacrificing what profits he could have made back home on this expedition where he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he wins the battle, he recovers the people, he gets the goods, and he comes back. Now, wouldn't you want to Take your profit. Hey, you won. One of the ways you know you win is you have a profit, don't you? Well, that, that's how we would think. We would want, hey, we'll take our profit. But Abram is not driven by money. You see, Abram is driven by the promise. The promise of God from Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. That's what drives him. So Abram was not driven by money, which is all that the world can offer. So here comes the king of Sodom. He says, keep the money. Keep the goods. Keep all of the physical assets. Let me have the people. Now may I suggest that is a very typical worldly practice. That's what the enemy likes to do. Give me the people. I don't care about the goods. Give me the people. I'll infect the people with, with me, sin, with get them to obey the ways of man and not the ways of God, and I will win that way. And so that's what Sod the king of Sodom represents here. He represents the city of man. He represents the ways of the enemy. He represents the ways of sin. But Abram was not going to bite on that. Abram was driven for communion with God. That's the only thing that impacted him. So he, there was no temptation in Abram's mind 
at all. He was very clear. He apparently, in this whole venture, he had had communion with the Father. He had discussed this with the Father. And he had concluded that this was a venture in which he was not going to profit from. And he was okay with that. And most of us won't do anything unless we're going to make a buck. Right? We're not used to doing things unless we can make a profit. But he didn't do any, he didn't do this for profit. He did this because he felt led of the Lord and this was being obedient to the Lord to do that. And his reward was not the money. His reward was a deeper relationship with God. So how many of us look for those opportunities, those ventures that will take us deeper with God and know that's the reward, not the money? Yeah, we don't do that. No, we're into the money. That's how we think. What's in it for me is what we say, isn't it? It's all about the money. Um, maybe, you know, this is, we're having so much difficulty with this, I'm just going to not worry about that, okay? All right, so that's, that's really a challenge. All right, well, let's go on. I'm going to go on to Melchizedek here. Um, Melchizedek is a very interesting guy. He appears only a few times in Scripture, and arguably... This is one of the first theophanies in Scripture. You want know a theophany is? A theophany is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. You know, Christ became incarnate. He came in the flesh, you know, many, many years later. It's recorded in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, we have what appear to be some appearances of Christ prior to his actual incarnation. That's why we call it a pre-incarnate appearance. So many theologians view this as one of the first theophanies. So Melchizedek represents this pre-incarnate Christ. And I want to read you a text out of Hebrews 7 that tells us more about Melchizedek. So help us understand, you know, this king of Salem called Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness and also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch, Abraham, gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their fellow Israelites. That is part of the, the law. Now most of you, when you think about the tithe, you probably think about the law. But keep in mind, this is the first appearance of the tithe in Genesis 14. The law is not going to show up until Exodus, Exodus 20. So we're way ahead of the law, but he now refers to the law and points out that in the law, we have the tithe, the concept of the tithe incorporated into the law, and they take the law, the, the tithe from the fellow Israelites, even though they are descended from Abraham. This man, referring back to Melchizedek, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. Melchizedek did not have a genealogy. He did not have a mother or father. He didn't have an origin. And he doesn't have an end. Now, who does that sound like? Sound like Christ. Christ was not created. He has no father or mother. He has no genealogy. Now, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I read Matthew, and it's got a genealogy right there. Yes, it's got a human genealogy. And that genealogy is of Who? Joseph. Okay? Now, who conceived Jesus? The Holy Spirit operating through Mary. Jesus was Joseph's adopted son. You see that? He was his adopted son. He was not his natural son. Now, usually people say, wow, I've never seen that before. Had y'all seen that before? Well, see, this is why he, he's such a, Melchizedek is such a perfect picture. Jesus 
doesn't really have a genealogy because he have, doesn't have a, created, a time of creation. He was not born, although he was incarnate, and he did show up as a baby. He existed prior to that. It's fascinating when you see some of these little points. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, Melchizedek is the greater blessing Abraham who is the recipient of the promises. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. The Levites die. Under the law, when they collected the tithe under the law, those Levites died. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living, that is, Melchizedek collected this tithe and he never died. Just like he was not born. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abram because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Now that's fascinating right there to talk about how seeds of people are in us, even generations before they were born. And that's a fascinating reality. Okay, so this Melchizedek is a picture, a picture of Christ. It's a picture of the communion that we can have with him and the rule and reign under which we can live. See, we have a choice. We can live under the rule and reign of the king of Salem, the king of of righteousness, or we can, we can live under the rule and reign of the king of Sodom, which is, the, which is about the ways of man. So that's the, the world that we're in. Now, as we think about this, there are some very interesting implications here for us. First of all, you say, okay, there's the king of Sodom. He shows up. He brings nothing. The only thing he does is ask for people, and he offers only temporal goods. That's his agenda. That's always the ways of the world. The world comes to us, and the only enticement they have is money, maybe fame, maybe influence in the natural. That's it. There's nothing else that the world really has. But then the king of Salem comes, Melchizedek, and he offers us now communion and a blessing. He asks for nothing, and he's offering us eternal wealth. So which will it be? Which king will we live under? Which king will we submit to? Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now what is that symbolic of? Well, immediately we're going we're to partake of the bread and the wine here in a minute. It's speaking of communion, right? Communion with God. Have you ever noticed that we partake of the elements internally? We take the elements and we, we eat the bread, we drink the wine. It goes inside of us. And we all partake of the same elements. So the oneness of the elements now is in all of us, which is creating a unity, a bond among all of us. So Melchizedek... On that day, when Abram returns from that battle with all the booty and all the people, walks out, and there's the king of Sodom. And so Abram has to make a choice. That's part of the test. Remember, he's a man under promise. Well, he's going to be tested. Which way? Which king will you submit to? Abram doesn't hesitate. I'll, you know, give you, I'm not going to take anything from you. You know, I just need what my men ate, what they consumed on the trip, and give these allies of mine their share, what they're entitled to, but I'm not taking anything else because I'm not going to say you made me rich. No, Abraham was already rich. But see, Abraham wanted to go the extra mile to be sure there was no confusion. I am not submitting to the king of Sodom. I'm submitting to the king of peace, to the king of righteousness. And this king comes and facilitates my communion with my father. And so now 
I am one with him. And out of gratitude, I'm going to take some of this money that I'm entitled to, but I'm going to decline, and I'm going to give it as a tithe to Melchizedek, who represents Christ. And then I'm going to turn down the rest of the prophet. Well, who would do that? If we were all brutally honest, probably nobody in this room would do that. You know, a windfall prophet. And you're going to give, just give 10% to Melchizedek? What's going on here? There's a level of thinking, a level of reality, a level of understanding that is beyond what most of us have any clue about. And that's the challenge to learn to live at that level. Abraham's response was simple. He said no to the world, no to the definitions of the world, no to the standards of the world, no to the practices of the world, no to the things that the world values, and he said yes to communion with God. Communion with God means God defines everything. He defines your values, your practices. He defines what you do, when you do it, how you do it. It is his will, not your will. It's his ways, not your ways. That's what he said yes to. Interesting, in the very next chapter, in chapter 15, Abram's having a little remorse. You ever have that experience where you, you did something, you thought, well, that was the right thing to do, but now you got, you're second-guessing it? Like, okay, was that really smart? I mean, I don't know, we don't know how much money he, he passed. Okay. I don't, I don't know how to denominate. I mean, was it $100 million, $200 million, $500 million? What was it? I don't know how much, how many, what was the value of the goods in Sodom? Who knows? They had a lot of fancy dresses for the ladies. It could be very expensive. Okay. A lot of fancy furniture. Could be very expensive. So he might have been, you know, wondering about this as he goes on and the Lord visits him. And he says, I am your shield. The Lord's speaking to Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And Abram says, now this is so cool because he's not thinking about the money. See, immediately we start thinking about the money. He says, who's my heir? You gave me a promise. It requires an heir. I have no heir. Right now, the only heir I have is this guy, Eliezer of Damascus. He's really not my son. Who's my heir? And the Lord says, don't worry. You'll have it. And then it says, and he believed God. And God accredited that as righteousness. A picture, again, of where, it's, where we're all going with this. It's all about ultimately recognizing we can't do things well enough to please God. Only Christ can. So ultimately, our standing with God is secure only by virtue of faith in Christ. So this is the, the level of reality he's living at. I mean, when I study this and look at this, it just taxes me and challenges me to a whole new level that I don't think I've begun to touch. All right, just I want to make some observations about the tithe here. As we look at this text, and let me just read verses 17 through 20 again to you. Then Abraham returned from defeating Cataliomer and the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. Sheva, I think that's correct. That is the valley, of the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies in your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So, number one, first thing I noticed about this is the tithe was a response of the heart not a ritual. A response of the heart, not a ritual. Now remember I talked to you about the Japanese and how the Japanese think. They don't see that they are fundamentally depraved, that is fallen, have a sin nature. They think they make mistakes. And they may call them evil, but they're just generally mistakes. And all they have to do is some ritual and they can get back into the good graces of the gods. So that's how they, they operate. They have no need of a savior. 
Well, that's a ritual. The Jewish people, when they were given the law, what were they given? Rituals. You do these things perfectly and you'll be acceptable. And of course, the purpose of that whole experiment is explained in Galatians 3. And Galatians 3 lays out very clearly there was nothing wrong with the law. And if you obeyed it perfectly, you could be righteous. But the reality is there's no way it is not possible for anyone to obey it perfectly. Because we are fundamentally, by nature, fallen. When Adam and Eve sinned, the fallen nature came into the human race. And every one of us traces our ancestry back to Adam and Eve. We've all come from that. And so now we partake of that fallen nature. And so we can never obey any law perfectly enough to be acceptable with God. So the ritual of the law was given to demonstrate this reality to man. The tithe was a response of the heart, not a ritual activity. So when you tithe, you're tithing out of a ritual? Wrong motive. That's not the reason. You tithe out of a grateful heart. Secondly, the tithe was made from the profit of the venture. Though the profit was in the end declined. You see, it really doesn't matter what's in it for you. It doesn't matter what's in it for me. What's, what matters is what's in it for the Lord. What's he after? What's he doing? What's he want to accomplish? And so as he prospers us in whatever way he prospers us, and we all are very prosperous people, all you got to do is spend a lot of time traveling around to some of the really poor countries of the world. Like when I went to South Africa, and I'm driving from the airport to the home of the host, and we drive past this large area, and there's all these things out there. I said, what is that? He said, oh, well, those are the poor people. The poor people said, yeah, we've got a people, these are people that, that don't have any jobs and don't have any money, don't have any assets. And so the government sets up these, these big compounds, and they call them shanty towns. And people go out there and just find scrap to put together some kind of dwelling, cardboard and sheets of metal and tents and all kinds of stuff. These people have nothing. And then every day they go out and try to find some way to find food, which means a lot of times they steal. And crime rate is very high there. It's a very, very difficult, very tough place. So we, living where we are today, and it doesn't matter where you live, in Canada, in the United States, you're very blessed. You are very blessed with financial and physical assets, comfort and convenience. And so don't ever think, well, what was me? I don't have as much as so-and-so had. You have got great blessings. In fact... You have what you need to do what you're called to do. All right, third thing. The tithe was given to the one who facilitated communion and blessing. So one of the things you've got to say, okay, if I get the tithe idea. It's not a ritual. I get it. It's, it's, as God increases things in my life, I need to acknowledge that he has given me these things. So, you know, I, I want to do that. But who do I do it with? Who, where do I give it? What do I do? Well, you want to find the people that facilitate your communion with God. Who helps you walk in relationship with God? Now, for most of you, that should be happening here in this place. Now, some of you may find it other places. Wherever it is that you are connected and you're communing with the Father, that's where you should be putting your tithe. And finally, the tithe is a response to communion and blessing, which means it is an act of worship. The word worship means to bow down, and bow down and kiss. It's a word of alignment. It's a word of submission. It's a word of dying to self to serve Christ and Christ alone. So the tie should be a response of being a servant of God. The more you walk in the reality of being a servant, the more likely you are to tithe. And so on some, on some level, the tithe is an indicator of where you are spiritually. Now, 
if you go try to tithe out of a ritual, you know, eh, wrong, it's not going to work. But when you are being real about who you are and about your relationship with God, and now you are giving, tithing out of that reality, on some level it's a measure now of where you are, how deep and how profound that reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory, really is. So, should you tithe? I'm going to say based on this first occurrence of the word tithe, it predates the law. For many people, you know, they try to decline the tithe because they say that was an Old Testament thing. Well, it was in the Old Testament. But Jesus viewed the Old Testament as Scripture. Paul viewed the Old Testament as Scripture. In fact, Paul said the Old Testament, the Scripture he had, was, uh, was the basis for which he conducted his life. And as you read the gospel accounts and you read the New Testament, you'll find that so much of the New Testament is written based on the Old Testament. You see, the New Testament didn't have the opinion of the Old Testament that we do. We many times take the Old Testament and just discount it, put it aside like it's not relevant. We just focus on the New Testament. Well, I'm sorry, the New Testament flows right out of the Old Testament. The New Testament is based on the Old Testament. The New Testament is Scripture. So the argument that, that I hear that, well, that's Old Testament, to me, that is not a valid argument. That's not a way to dismiss it. I think when you look at this reality that it is an integral part of Scripture, it predates the law, so the law doesn't tarnish it. It is a principle of Scripture that very clearly reflects spiritual reality in us. It's something we should do. And if we want to live by faith, and Abraham is the model of faith, look at Romans 4, he's the model of faith. If you want to live that way, then you'll tithe like Abraham tithed. Who should receive your tithe? Well, I've already answered this, but just real quickly, whoever blesses you and facilitates communion with Christ, whoever that is, whoever represents the truth of the Word of God and bringing that truth to you and helping you commune with it, which means align with it, which means participate with what God is doing, which means dying to self to serve the will and ways of God alone. Whoever is helping you do that, that is the one you should be tithing to. And for most of you, it probably will be right here in this place. So I encourage you, if you are not a tither, start tithing. Not as a ritual, but out of gratitude for what you have been given. 